we said. The Press Box. Back with another edition of the Press Box Podcast. Mike Grace from my partners, Chris Stewart and J.D. Byers. Glad to have you aboard as we offer up just a slice of what you can hear each and every weekday on great radio stations throughout the state of Alabama and online 24-7 at PressBoxRadio.com. Want to find us? That's where you start at PressBoxRadio.com. Check the affiliates page there to find the station nearest you. On the episodes page, you can hear the show on demand hour by hour or find the listen button. Click that. You can hear the Press Box anytime 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, today, Chris Stewart out for the day. So, Brad Law of the Auburn Sports Network able to join us. And we had a very special guest as the national sports business writer for the new On3 Sports Project is with us, Eric Prisbell. And, and Eric is the guy who broke the story on the NCAA uh, Alston case and who's picking up the tab for the $37 million legal fee. Eric was the guy who broke the story. And we asked him, where did he find this and, and how did it come about? It's so interesting because, as we know, the NCAA emerged sort of in tatters from the Austin Supreme Court case with a bill for legal fees that totaled $37.9 million. And everybody's, you know, I've talked to a variety of industry sources who, who have said, you know, they've spent so much time, money and energy on racking up legal fees in these cases that they have lost or will lose and they could have been spending that money elsewhere. Like, how about, you know, bolstering the weight room for the women's men's the women's NCAA tournament or the food uh, acumens for the women's NCAA tournament? So there's not that much of a gender disparity. But still, everybody still thought that the central office in Indianapolis, the NCAA, would pay the total legal fee bill. Um, not so fast. And that's why when I when I got this memo, I obtained this memo that the NCAA sent to all Division One commissioners on August four August fourth. I was stunned, and I'm not the only one. The people around the industry that I've talked to were also surprised when they got it. And and basically, what it says is this: I mean, they went through a whole you know meandering process where you know they they requested feedback from conferences on on who should pay how much of this bill. And, you know, the conferences predictably said that the NCAA should pay all of it. And then the board, the board of governors for the NCAA uh, declined that recommendation. And instead, they they approved the recommendation that the NCAA only pay 10 percent of it. Ninety percent of it will be left to the 32 Division One conferences. And it gets worse because 11 of those conferences were co-defendants in the case. OK. 21 of those conferences, all the small conferences that are operating on the margins anyway financially during the pandemic, they are left with 26% of this bill, almost three times as much as the NCAA itself will pay, and they have to pay it even though they were not co-defendants and they didn't have anything they say to, to do with the case. So they were really caught by surprise. They're struggling financially anyway. And it's just another another black eye for the NCAA that that is really wobbling right now and is going through and will go through, you know, a total transformation over the next several months. Eric, as you mentioned, when I read this story, you mentioned plan A was for the NCAA to 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 pay this full tab. That decision, again, by what the 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 
the Finance and Audit Committee uh, of the NCAA's Board of Governors. But there was a plan B that I think you wrote. There were actually eight different scenarios that were bounced around. But plan B was to spread it throughout the conferences. And and somehow that was approved by this the Finance and Audit Committee. Do we have any idea who makes up that Finance and, and Audit Committee? It's so interesting. And just this memo alone gives me another window and gives individuals another window into the processes, you know, within the walls of Indianapolis, where everything is a committee and subcommittee and a panel and and eight different scenarios. Just do what's right. And this this, according to the people I've talked to throughout the industry, they don't feel it's right. I mean, the NCA should foot the bill for this or at least the majority of that that bill. I, I don't off the top of my head know the composition of the Finance and Audit Committee, but I do know the composition of the Board of Governors who accepted the recommendation to make it final. And that's made up of, you know, an assortment of university presidents and chancellors. And and this group's under fire anyway. I mean, I, I talked with Jay Billis, had a long talk with him last week, and he said they should all resign. I mean, they he said they are responsible for extending the contract of Mark Emmer at a time when they were all still waiting for the final report on the gender equity, you know, uh, situation with the men's and women's basketball tournament. And obviously that that report came out recently and it was damning to the NCAA. And, And still with that with that hanging in the balance, this board of governors still extended the the contract of the beleaguered Mark Emmert. So, you know, all there's a confluence of issues right now with the NCAA everywhere you look. Uh, and, and it's going to be really interesting as we go through this uh, this chaotic period to see what emerges in terms of the landscape. Eric, is there any course of action for conferences to take moving forward, uh, or are they pretty much all in the camp that you know what? Now the SEC is paying two point five million, the Sun Belt two point one, and and some other numbers and oh, well, we've just got to pay it. Or is there anything that they can do moving forward to to answer back? Uh, that's a great question. And, and it's interesting. I mean, you know, the, the, the bill that each conference received means something different for each conference. And it, and it really exposes the wide, wide gap between the haves and the have-nots. I mean, for the SEC, they're bringing exactly. revenue totaling more than, you know, $700 million every year. So this is not a big deal for them. For some of the smaller leagues, uh, especially the ones that don't have football, it's a huge deal. And, you know, but it outlines in this memo very clearly that you have the option to pay over a four-year period starting next year, uh, or you could pay the whole thing right right now or in 2022, uh, you know, through a reduction in revenue distribution. That And that's it. I mean, and, and I followed up with people. I said, is this final? And they said, absolutely, this is the indication from the NCA. We are on the hook for this. And we, we have to decide you know, how we talk to our membership about this and what, and what plan, plans we, uh, we execute to make this happen and where, where some cuts may come from in terms of our budget. But you know, these, these, these are conferences already squeezed, already operating on the margins during an ongoing pandemic here. And, and they're just trying to you know, get by really. And then here comes this other bill from the NCAA for a legal fees for legal fees for a Supreme court case that they were not even co-defendants. I, I wanted to ask Eric, uh, Eric Prisbell's with us on three broke the story about the NCAA 
bill for legal fees from the Austin case being now passed down, or at least 90% of it, to the conferences, including 21 non-defendant conferences, those like the Big South, the A-Sun, et cetera, is I'm trying to go back down the timeline from when litigation started. And you would think that the NCAA, number one, would have a legal team that would understand the possibilities, positive or negative at the end, could include some bulky, uh, substantial legal fees for the plaintiff. And the other part of that question is, like many organizations, companies, corporations, entities, which the NCAA is one, normally have an umbrella policy, errors or an omissions where things like this can be taken care of, or were they just really confident that they could be self-insured and assume this and pay it if they needed to? And now all of a sudden it's not there or the reserves aren't what they are post-pandemic. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I, my, my feeling from talking to industry sources is that they, they kind of had their heads in the clouds. The NCAA did and were, and were delusional in, the, in their overconfidence regarding the outcome of the case, number one. And at the time when as this was approaching, you know, there, there was an ominous feeling uh, regarding the NCAA's standpoint and view on it that this is not going to go their way you know i don't know if everybody predicted that it would be unanimous as it was and that you know justice like brett kavanaugh would come out so strongly against the ncaa but that's that's how it played out once again they've misjudged this they've miscalculated it and it's another indication of you know what many people tell me is failed leadership from from mark emmer and that's been the case they say you know since he stepped foot in the position uh you know the conferences came back after the you know when when this was brought to their attention and said that the ncaa needs to use its reserves as necessary or at least at least pay more than 10 percent uh you know but you know like a lot of things in indianapolis it comes down to the board of governors and and they accepted this recommendation, much to the surprise of of a lot of people I, I, I've talked to. So, you know, that's it, it's another another black eye again for the NCAA. And and, uh, y- you know, it's not not a great public relations look. And also it just further divides the membership and, and further widens that gap again before the between the haves and the have nots. He is Eric Prisbelt, again, national sports business writer for On3 Sports, a terrific resume that includes Sports Business Journal, The Washington Post, USA Today. Eric, I'll get around to asking what you think the future of the NCAA maybe looks like, but I want to ask you about what I would describe as another brick in the wall. Uh, you've written about the NCAA's committee that's been put together to, quote-unquote, fix college athletics and the makeup of that committee, and I think the, you pointed out the fact that there's not a not one current division one student athlete on that committee. It it was astounding. And I felt that way. And everybody I've talked to basically feels the same way too. You can call it status quo. You can call it lacking imagination. You can call it tone deaf, but this constitution committee and look, I don't have an issue with any individual on it. And, and the people I've talked to do not have an issue with any individual on this committee as well. It's a, it's a makeup of, you know, mostly administrators throughout college athletics and some that are very well regarded. But you do not have like really reform minded individuals on this committee. And it's just more of the same. So how are you going to reinvent the whole collegiate model when you're asking the people who helped create and support and endorse 
reverse the the same collegiate model that we have now to be on this committee. It's just not not very conducive to making that happen. And the most stunning part is we've seen all summer uh, realignment in in college football is being driven by you know TV media rights deals and, and college football controls everything. We know it. Yet on this committee, there is not one single active division one athlete from a revenue producing sport not a women's basketball player not a men's basketball player no not a college football player the nca gets most of its revenue uh you know some 800 million dollars a year out of the 1.1 billion that it brings in annually from the ncaa tournament revenue there's not a single men's basketball uh player you know representative on this uh on this committee so uh, look, hmm. I mean, it's it's just not good. And, you know, if you're looking for major change, you know, there's it may happen. It may happen. But this this committee does not give you a strong indication that that is likely. Our topic here is the uh, the memo that our guest, Eric Prisbell, on three uh, was able to obtain that showed that the NCAA was going to be having to pass on uh the, the legal fees to conferences to pay in the Austin case. And I wanted to follow up, and I should know this, but to clarify, especially for maybe those who don't know or haven't followed us closely, that these are legal fees for the plaintiff, Austin, et cetera, during a pretty drawn-out trial or litigation. Is there any damages over and above to benefit the other party beyond the legal fees, or is this it – because if that has to come, somebody's going to have to be paying that as well. Is that from the NCAA? Or are they going to pass that bill on as well? Or does this just end a case that says, okay, from now on, you know, you can earn, but there's no back punitive damages? It's it's a great question. I'm not aware of any back punitive damages. I, you know, this is clearly related to the Austin plaintiff's legal fees. Uh, I'm also not not completely convinced that this is the final uh, tally here that it, there may be more fees uh, on top of this. In addition to that, I mean, there's there's another ongoing case right now involving you know mostly NIL related issues that the NCA is involved in, uh, and likely more to come. Uh, but as you know, the people I've talked to, Jay Bills being one of them, uh, has have said the the court system has already, especially the Supreme Court, already signaled how they feel on this issue. And if you're expecting one of these major cases to go in the NCAA's favor, uh, you're going to have a rude awakening because that's likely not going to be the case. Uh, the Austin case was only the beginning and everything is is unraveling, you know, some 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 slowly, some more quickly. But, you know, change is upon us. And, you know, in a year and two years from now, you know, things will look entirely different and the landscape will begin to, you know, take a new form in, in college sports. And we'll have to see how that all plays out. Eric, only a couple of minutes left. So I hate to do this to you and limit your, your time for a response to this question. But I mean, is, does the NCAA survive this? Will we still have an NCAA one year, two years, five years from now? It will survive as an organization that that operates and runs events. And that's what I believe it will be uh, in terms of an enforcement arm. No, I don't I don't think that is going to they've shown that neither the ability nor the willingness to really uh, sustain 
a credible, robust enforcement arm, you know, that's not toothless, that does not practice selective enforcement. I think that will go to the conferences and they'll have to police themselves. My biggest thing, I've just written about it, what will happen to the NCAA tournament? And people are bracing themselves. These smaller leagues are bracing themselves. Is there going to be a breakaway in this era of super conferences where they're going to just say, hey, let's let's stage our own postseason tournament all high major programs, let's shut the door on the talented mid-major programs. And that has long, you know, lasting repercussions. I love the NCAA tournament. I'm just saying, please don't ruin that thing. It's been, it's been the one thing that the NCAA has not screwed up, you know, over the last several years. He's Eric Prisbell of On3Sports.com. It's an incredible article. Find it online. Eric Prisbell on Twitter and, again, online at On3Sports.com find out more about that our thanks to eric for joining us inside the press box and thanks to you for joining us here for the press box podcast a couple things you can do for us if you like what you hear first of all subscribe and rate and review the program we'd appreciate that and then tell a friend to do the same thing they can find us on apple or google podcast plus iHeartRadio, spotify stitcher tune in wherever you find your favorite podcast simply search for press box radio one that's press box radio and the number one to find this press box podcast and don't forget Still time to fall into a press box paradise courtesy of our friends at Meyer Vacation Rentals, Breakline Optics, and the Press Box. Your chance to win a three-night stay in a two-bedroom golf front condo, and all the details are online at PressBoxRadio.com. For Brad, for Chris, for JD, this is Mike saying so long for now, and we'll see you next time inside the Press Box.